Hello and welcome to Emergency on Planet Earth with me, Mary Cray. In the last episode, we heard from three eminent scientists about how climate change and pollution are changing the Arctic. In August, I travelled to Svalbard, a Norwegian group of islands around 600 miles south of the North Pole, to find out more about how the Arctic is changing and to talk to local people about the effect this is having on them and the wildlife around them. Amid retreating ice and dramatic mountains, around 2,000 people live on these remote islands and on the front line of our changing climate. Svalbard is also home to researchers and scientists from around the world who are studying these changes. They hope to understand better how our planet is changing and to find ways to protect this unique, vulnerable environment from climate change and pollution. I started by speaking to Shestin Ashkolt, the governor of Svalbard, and Morten Vediger, head of Svalbard's environmental department. We met in Longyearbyen, the main settlement on Svalbard. I began by asking Shestin what effect climate change has had on people living locally. Yeah, we uh, actually live in the climate change here in Svalbard. It's the place on the earth where the climate change uh, comes more quickly and uh, we are first actually to, to experience the climate change. Uh, for us uh, we uh, have a more wilder and wetter climate, we have more avalanches, uh, the permafrost is uh, decreasing, uh, so it's a huge challenge for us and uh, because of the climate change and the danger for avalanches in the city we have to move around 140 houses. So in a city with just 2,000 people, to have to move around 10% yeah. of your population mm. overnight, can you describe what that was like uh, when you had to do that last year? It's dramatically, of course. Uh, it's 10% of the population. It includes all children who can be scared, uh, of course. Um, their parents, have, we move them uh, two or three times every winter. So it's a big change. Earlier we called uh, Svalbard and Longyearbyen uh, Arctic Desert, but uh, nowadays we really experience the wilder and the wetter climate up here. Okay, and Morten, you're the environmental officer for uh, in, in the governor's office. Uh, we're sitting here um, next to the fjord, uh, amazing medieval fortress-like cliffs, uh, glaciers further down the fjord that, that we can see. I mean, the most spectacular view. I thought I had a good view in the House of Commons looking at the Thames. But you were saying that 12 years ago you had summer sea ice here that you could cross over the fjord and that hasn't been seen for 12 years. It was winter sea ice. It was winter so, yeah, sea ice. So, so what we see now, uh, in the summer it's common not to have ice in the fjords here. But uh, the winter, it's the same now. It didn't used to be like that. It used to be all white and covered with ice mm. 12, 15, 20 years ago. But for the last 10, 12 years, uh, the fjords on the western side has been ice-free the whole winter, more or less. Mm. It's a dramatic change in a short mm. time period. Mm. And um, can you say also what is happening? We talked about wilder, wetter winters, and you were describing what happens when the ice rain comes down, when you get rain in the winter. Why is that a problem? The problem is that when you have snow cover on the ground and then you suddenly get a, a warm spell in January, which does happen more often now, then you get raining which and then freezes again on top and creates a very hard cover 
And for the reindeers who live here the whole year and trying to get to the vegetation digging through, they can't dig through that ice. So that means that the reindeer population might actually crash when you get uh, wetter winters as we do now. And why is that important also for the Arctic fox? The Arctic fox is, uh, amongst others, dependent during winter for actually eating uh, dead reindeers. Because reindeers do die mm. during the winter, it's part of life cycle. And uh, if you don't have reindeers, then the, the Arctic fox basically have very little food in the winter time and won't survive either. Mm. And, and what about sorry. And then you have the polar bear who needs the ice yes. to uh, hunt for seals. Mm. So when the ice disappear, uh, we don't know. Uh, We're very concerned about mm. the, the marine life here because mm. uh, the sea ice is such an important part of the ecosystems here. So when the sea ice, it's the foundation of the Arctic ecosystem. And when the foundation is gone, what mm. happens? And we start to see it, but it's still, as I say, 10, 12 years. It's not a long time. But well, we are very concerned about what's happening. What will it look like 10 years from now? As well as melting sea ice, rising temperatures mean Svalbard's 2,000 glaciers are in retreat. What happens when a glacier melts and what effect does it have on marine ecosystems? I spoke to Chris Borstadt, Associate Professor of Snow and Ice Physics at UNIS, the University Centre in Svalbard. When you have ice or snow melting at the surface of a glacier, that meltwater is going to find its way down into cracks and eventually to the base of the glacier where the glacier is sitting on bedrock. And the water can act as a sort of lubricant um, for the glacier, allowing the ice to flow faster. And that's because the ice can sit strongly on the bedrock, but when you put a bunch of water in there, it can, the, the water can sort of pressurize the interface between the ice and the rock and jack up the glacier and reduce the friction allowing it to flow fast. So it, it's a kind of dynamic process so the more it melts the more it melts. Yes there are a lot of complicated feedbacks involved in, in, in this kind of thing. So there's also a feedback mechanism within each individual glacier. Yes yes there is so the, the ice is melting and depending on where the water goes the glacier can speed up that can result in more icebergs being dumped into the ocean and more sea level contribution from those icebergs. And that's on top of the meltwater itself being delivered to the ocean, okay. all, both of which contribute to sea level rise. But there's also a problem when they retreat, when they go back up the, the valley that they came from. Tell us what the problem is when a glacier retreats back onto the land. Because I think most people think of them melting into the sea they mm -hmm. don't, and they think it's always a bad thing. But actually, melting glaciers have a very important role to play in the fjord ecosystem, don't they? Yes, they do. So many glaciers terminate in the ocean. Um, and so when you have uh, meltwater coming out from the bottom of the glacier, it's coming out on the seafloor because the glacier's jutting into the ocean. And that meltwater, it's, it's melted snow or melted ice, it's fresh water coming out at depth within the fjord then. That meltwater is going to rise up then to the surface of the fjord and that rising meltwater plume generates circulation within the fjord. And that circulation is important for nutrient cycling. Uh, that's important for um, fish, krill, and other um, communities within the water. Uh, that's important then also for birds that feed on these things. So there's a whole ecosystem dynamic that's um, generated every year when this melting water 
comes out from underneath a glacier as long as the glacier's in contact with the ocean. Once the glacier retreats onto land, any meltwater runoff from that glacier will just flow out on top of the fjord now, and there won't be any of this cycling. The, the water will just spread out on the surface. So when the glacier retreats, we lose the beneficial effects of it running in to, up to the base of the fjord and churning up the sort of bottom level, which is where all the kind of bacteria yeah. and the food sources live, and that's very important for the fish. Exactly. You, you lose this whole cycling kind of pump um, from when the glacier was in the water. As well as witnessing the effects of climate change, Svalbard is home to an institution which plays a globally important role in protecting our food supplies from threats such as climate change, natural disasters or wars. I spoke to Constanza, who works in Svalbard's museum. Spitsbergen is host to a very unusual and very important global institution, the Global Seed Vault. Can you tell us how this seed vault came about? Well, since we previously had the Nordic uh, Seed Vault in mine number three, there were more and more countries interested to deposit their seeds to keep it in case of catastrophe or anything, uh, disaster, what could happen. So they this was an old coal mine where people kept their seeds from one crop yes. season to the next? Yes, mine number three. Okay. So uh, the seed vault that we have now, the global seed vault, was opened in 2008 and when they started uh, to plan this, I'm not quite sure actually, but there are many, many countries that have uh, make it, uh, made a de deposit of some seeds. There are right now there are more than one million different seeds in the, in, the, in the global seed world. It's under construction. Uh, the thing is that it should be minus 18 degrees. The temperature should be stable so that the conditions are good for the seeds when they want to preserve it. Um, minus 18 degrees. Minus 18. Okay. And that has been quite a problem. That's why it's not possible to visit the seed world as well. They have the door closed. So only once or twice a year, the people are coming from Sweden, from Norgen, and they open it up for a journalist or whatever when, they, when some countries have to make a deposit. Now, there has been a withdrawal from the seed bank as well. These yes. seeds arrive in black box conditions, so they can't be opened up and, and, and fiddled around with. But one country, tragically, has had to make a withdrawal from the seed bank. Can you tell us about that? Uh, I think it was Aleppo in Syria. So they had to take out the seeds to try to make it work again back in their home country. So already the seed bank, as a result of war in Syria, has, has shown how useful it is. Svalbard's northerly location makes it perfect for storing things at low temperatures. But it's also the perfect spot to study another, more spectacular phenomenon. On the 27th of October, the sun set on Svalbard. It won't rise again until the 15th of February. But the long Arctic winter isn't totally dark. A hundred miles above the Earth, solar winds, attracted by the magnetic pull of the poles, collide with the upper reaches of the atmosphere. Trillions of charged particles dance across the sky, creating the famous Northern Lights. Lisa Badley is Associate Professor of Space Physics at Svalbard's University Centre. I spoke to her about the different kinds of Northern Lights and whether this otherworldly phenomenon 
could affect the UK's weather and climate systems. We have particles that are coming off from the sun continuously and when those particles strike the upper atmosphere of the Earth they collide with nitrogen and oxygen uh, atoms and molecules which creates the aurora. Now most people see the night tide aurora which is all the greens and things but up here we're so far north that in the winter months we have 24 hour darkness and then we can see something called dayside aurora which is um, entirely a different uh, phenomena. We have the particles, they come directly into the Earth's upper atmosphere, so it's more of a red colour compared to the night side aurora, which is more of a green colour. Why does it matter what we can see with the daytime um, aurora? The daytime aurora, um, it provides us with a signature um, where we can see the Earth's magnetic field is connected to the Sun's magnetic field and we can look at that signature and see how it moves around in our atmosphere and how much energy comes into our atmosphere um, through these, these different processes. So we use radars that we have up here, we use optical cameras um, and all different types of equipment to try and understand how much energy is coming in from these particles and how this region moves around in the atmosphere. And why is that important for climate change? Well, we have to consider that the, the Earth's um, systems are one big system. So we have the upper atmosphere, which I study from 60 kilometres further up. We have the meteorologists who study further down near the surface. Then we have the oceanographers and the people who study the ice mechanics. It's one big system. So we can't ignore what's coming in at the higher layers of the atmosphere because this energy has to go somewhere. So it will filter down to the different layers. So that's what we're trying to understand. We're kind of bringing our bit of research to try and understand the whole Earth system. And is that going to be important for weather forecasting in the future or is it more about the processes of climate change and human-induced global warming? I would say it's more about the processes um, of climate change in general. The sun, you know, if we, if we don't have the sun, that's it. That's our main source of energy. So we have to take that um, amount of energy into account when we're looking at how the climate is changing um, on Earth. As to the effects of the weather further down, I do have colleagues at the British Antarctic Survey who I know have been looking into, into some of these effects, so who knows. Lisa Badley there talking about her astronomical research. Like all oceans, the Arctic has a growing plastic pollution problem. Most of the plastic waste which goes in the sea from the UK ends up in the Arctic, carried by winds and ocean currents. Plastic has been found in every species of animal in the Arctic, from plankton to polar bears. And there's evidence that it may be building up in multi-year Arctic ice, which is releasing it as it melts with global warming. The best way to tackle ocean plastic pollution is to reduce the amount that goes into the sea. But how can we get people to use less plastic? I spoke to Lizzie Gabe Thomas, an environmental psychologist at Plymouth Marine Laboratory, who was visiting Svalbard as part of her research into marine plastic pollution. I began by asking her what an environmental psychologist does. There's two things that um, environmental psychologists study. So firstly, um, we look at how the environment around us affects humans, and then also how humans um, affect the environment and how we can minimise the negative impact that humans have on the environment. Now you're in Svalbard this week looking at marine plastics. How do people think about plastics in the marine environment? 
Well, this is one of the things I'd like to um, find out, but my initial inclination is that they just don't really understand the impact that it has on all the different kinds of benefits that an ecosystem can provide humans with. So you've done some surveys with your colleagues on the sort of plastic debris that is showing up in the Arctic. What have they found? Certainly, so an interdisciplinary team of, of all different kinds of scientists, not just social scientists um, like envir- environmental psychologists. So we've been looking at, um, uh, there's beach clean analysis, there's been people here diving under the water in Svalbard and picking out litter. So um, what they've generally found is the majority of the uh, waste, up to 80% is from fisheries. And what's the other 20% of that marine waste? So most of that is single-use plastic. So things like bottles, um, food packaging, um, cigarette butts, things like that. Do you know where any of this um, plastic is coming from? Is it coming from the cruise ships that are bringing 5,000 people into the Arctic? Is it coming from Britain's shores? Do we know where this stuff is coming from? It's very hard to tell. Um, often if the um, the litter is in a in a good state, you can see by the language that's on it. For example, there's quite a lot of um, Norwegian you know ketchup bottles and things like that that are being found. But it really it's quite difficult to source and the more it breaks down, the harder it is to identify where it's come from. Mm, so what um, are you what does your research what is it trying to do in general i'm really interested in um working with other scientists to work out as best we can where this where all the plastic is coming from and then um my role as a psychologist i feel that i should look at the different kind of behaviors that contribute to this so plastic it's not one big mass it's it's lots of different things from lots of different places and lots of different behaviors and i would love to map out what these behaviors are and how do we change them because different behaviors have different predictors so different antecedents so different things will influence different behaviors so as uh, policymakers if we know um, for example with plastic bottles what are the main things that affect um, people buying throwing away disposing of incorrectly um, then we can change those behaviors but it's it's a really really complex system and i'd like to kind of unpick um, how we can we do that so it's a massive task really it certainly is you've got your work cut out for you all best with that research lizzie gabe thomas there as a policymaker, i very much look forward to seeing what answers lizzie finds there certainly haven't been any in this year's budget that brings us to the end of this episode of emergency on planet earth i'm mary cray thank you for listening and listen in next time where we'll be discussing the environmental and social impacts of fast fashion.